Hello, and welcome to week five of the podcast. If you're new, each week I invite someone from around campus into the studio to help us think about this year's campus read, the memoir Educated by Tara Westover. Today, Jessica Johnston-York and Brian Quigley are here from the Caruth Center, WVU's counseling service. Uh, So I'm thinking today of friends and family who suffer from mental illness of various kinds, substance abuse, depression, anxiety. I'm thinking particularly of a former student from when I taught high school who scared me one recent fall when I saw him in New York City. This was several years after he'd graduated. He was in school at Columbia. And when we were together, he, his behavior was, was alarming. His conversation was drifting in and out of sense. He struggled to form coherent sentences, his arms moving wildly, but nothing coming out of his mouth. At one point, we stopped in a chess shop for a game, and midway through, out of the blue, he started weeping. Later that night, he called me in a panic, breathless and paranoid. It wasn't until he contacted me this past winter to make amends, he'd started AA, that I felt at all sure he would survive. Seeing him in that state, I realized, really for the first time, just how vulnerable we are in our adolescence and early 20s, how volatile we can be, how fragile our hold on things is. Certainly Tara Westover's story confirms that. She struggles mightily when she goes off to college, and throughout not only her undergraduate education, but also in grad school, she experiences depression so profound that she detaches almost completely from her life. She binge-watches TV shows for 20 hours at a time. She wakes in the middle of the street some nights, having sleptwalked. At points, she questions her very sense of reality. Certainly her circumstances are extreme, and the traumas of her early life, including physical and emotional abuse, cut very deep. Tragically, not uncommon. And that's why I've asked Jessica and Brian to come onto the show, to help us see the general aspects to Westover's very specific story. Maybe I'll just ask you guys to introduce yourselves, first of all. So, go ahead. Sure. I'm uh, Dr. Jessica Johnston-York. I'm a supervised psychologist over at uh, Caruth Center. And I'm Brian Quigley. I'm a psychiatrist. I work with Jessica at the Caruth Center. Well, thank you both for coming in. I've really been looking forward to this conversation. Up to this point in the show, I've mostly had scholars or or academics, and maybe you have a scholarly aspect to your work, but I'm, I'm sort of looking forward to talking about the book with a slightly different lens. But before we do that, uh, I do want to make sure that people know about the Caruth Center, where it is, what you do, how one gets involved with it. So if you wouldn't mind just talking a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So we're located in the Health and Education Building over on Evansdale campus. Um, So up on the second floor, if you go above uh, Well WVU, we're on the second floor. And uh, you can come to us during our drop-in hours, uh, Monday through Friday, 9 to 3. Um, And you can also call us to schedule um, a scheduled triage appointment, which is an initial um, appointment to come in, meet with us, let us know what's going on, um, get yourself set up with services. Um, So you can give us a call at 304-293-4431 if you wanted to schedule a triage appointment, which is probably the easiest way to do it. Okay, and I'll put a link to the website where the podcast is listed. Okay, and who might decide they want to go to the Caruth Center, or why would one make an appointment? 
Well, anyone. Um, and there's a whole variety of reasons that people decide to come with us, to stay with us. If you come, you don't you don't necessarily have to stay. It's not, <laughs> not like you, you you check in, but you don't check out. It's, <laughs> it's, it's not a, a gr- sanatorium. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's very much a place where you can come and consult, ask some questions. Perhaps whatever your concerns were get addressed in a single visit, but sometimes it takes several visits. So yeah, we're, we're I mean, it's really, there, there's not any specific thing. Certainly the, the common things that students come to see us about would be things related to depression, anxiety, alcohol and drug use concerns, you know, just the idea of stress, uh, especially when it um, impacts academic functioning and, mm-hmm. and other functioning. Mm-hmm. And we provide a wide variety of services. Majority of the things we offer are free. So we have group therapy, a lot of different groups going on right now. I'm leading a interpersonal process group for undergraduates, so you can talk about anything. Um, we have two groups for grad students. So if you're someone like Tara in grad school and struggling, we, we got you. Let's see, we got individual therapy, um, psychiatry, of course. Um, we have testing through our... Sorry, can I interrupt for one second? Yeah. You said individual therapy and mm-hmm. psychiatry. Mm-hmm. What's the difference between the two? I think you could maybe answer yeah, this yeah. better. Yeah, <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, there, there are about two psychiatrists, and then we have some, some trainee psychiatrists that work at the Crew Center, and we focus on the medication aspects. Okay. Um, and then there are, I think, in the neighborhood of almost 20... Uh, counselor therapists um, with a variety of backgrounds and expertise um, expertises uh, at the Crew Center. Okay. Sorry to interrupt, no, Jessica. No, absolutely. So kind of this difference between this psychotherapy, talk therapy, if that's what you want to call it, versus mm-hmm. um, kind of informed medication management. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's see. So MindFit, um, uh, assessment for things like ADHD, uh, learning disorders, um, kind of how to enhance your cognitive performance. Uh, we've got outreach, which is what we're doing right now. SAP yep. for substance-related concerns, alcohol, drug use, counseling. Some students get our, you know, if they have like a violation, they'll come to us mm-hmm. sort of mandate in a mandated way. We have workshops as well, which is a little bit different. You know, there's a life hacks series that's done that kind of looks at like super common things that come up in college students, breakups, um, addresses things like sleep, you know, sort of lifestyle things that, that definitely come up that impact our mental health. I'm sure we're leaving something out. Probably. The rest of our... It's, our, on, the, it's all on the website. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And another great thing about our website is we have um, a blog section that um, our graduate student trainees contribute to. So they cover a wide variety of mental health topics. So, you know, if you're the kind of person who needs to take in information, reflect, and kind of think about it, work on on your own, that's a really great resource. Kind of take a look at that. Come visit us if you have more kind of follow-up concerns. And I'll, I'll plug our groups even even more. The groups are really cool, and the reason I want to plug it is because I think a lot of people are, a, a gr- you know, a group? Like, <laughs> whoa, I'm, I'm jumping in deep here. Mm-hmm. Um, but but the, there's a dynamic that, often occurs in groups that you can't get in kind of mm-hmm. a one-on-one uh, situation. Like the grad student group is one of our more successful groups. And the value there is that you have a bunch of individuals that often have a shared experience. 
Um, so we have a, uh, I'm not sure if this semester, if we have a, a sexual assault survivors group. Not this semester, but we will in the spring. In the spring. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's another um, group that, you know, sounds really, and it is intimidating, um, but but the benefits are huge and often hard to see, I think, when you're first coming in is, you know, the value of having other people, you know, peers more or less that that can see and appreciate a lot of of what you're experiencing i as we were going over tara's experience you know i i I found myself wondering i wonder how she would do in a a a grad student group you know where you know she might hear from other grad students that have a lot of similar Mm -hmm. um experiences that she could relate to i think that's something really powerful to have someone who's not a therapist who you know is, has gone through similar experiences, can relate at an emotional level who's like, yeah, I get it, or I feel you. Because I think a lot of times clients are like, oh, well, you're a therapist, of course. You, <laughs> you know, of course you're supportive. Uh, but You're uh, paid to be supportive. Yeah, I get that one a lot. Um, and Yeah, I, I think there's something so much more powerful about um, someone who is in a similar spot as you, who who gets it, who makes an effort to support you. That means a lot. And I suppose to be the one who's supporting somebody else, Absolutely. that there's, there's, that that's helpful. Huge. Yeah. And from a neurobiological perspective, right? It's, it's such an enriching environment. You have social and, and so many more things going on in the space um, that lends itself to new, lends itself to new perspectives and, and really is probably arguably from a neurobiological perspective, more enriching just because mm-hmm. there's so much going on. It's hugely empowering to be able to use your story to help and yeah. support others. Yeah. yeah, you're using empathy and all these other amazing parts of the brain that yeah. you don't in the privacy of your own mind when you're trying to do your own therapy. <laughs> yeah, which right. I don't recommend. <laughs> <laughs> that would actually be a great place to dip into the book just a little bit, and we can our conversation kind of kind of go into the book, and we can digress from it and and sort of talk about whatever comes up. But I did want to read a little bit of the book because. For those of you who have read it, Tara Westover struggles quite a bit with mental illness of some kind, trauma, depression, anxiety, when she's in school, both as an undergraduate and then again as a grad student. And it takes her a long time for a variety of reasons, which I love to talk about with you guys. And Why is it that it takes her so long to finally make an appointment and and see the university counseling service but she does eventually and i'm very interested in how she talks about that experience so uh, she says and this is towards the end of the book when i heard this story i made the only good decision i had made for months i enrolled in the university counseling service i was assigned to a sprightly middle-aged woman with tight curls and sharp eyes who rarely spoke in our sessions preferring to let me talk it out, which I did, week after week, month after month. The counseling did nothing at first. I can't think of a single session I would describe as helpful, but their collective power over time was undeniable. I didn't understand it then, and I don't understand it now, but there was something nourishing in setting aside that time each week in the act of admitting that I needed something I could not provide for myself. So I would just love to hear you both talk about that. Does that sound familiar, both you know, in your experience as as professionals, but maybe also in, in your experience as individuals? 
So I would say yes and no. Um, <laughs> I, think, I think it widely varies based on how each indiv- individual therapist works. So your style might be very different. Hmm. Personally, my, my style is more non-directive, kind of sit back, talk to me. So I, I might be more like this therapist, not intervening quite as much. But I think as I read that, what stuck out to me is that my perspective was Westover really needed someone to validate her experience. She had had people throughout her life telling her this didn't happen. It's not like that. She didn't believe herself. She didn't believe her own memories. And so just having someone give her space to share um, seemed really important to her, mm-hmm. um, even more so than getting like specific direct feedback, at least initially. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think when I, when I read that I, at first, I was like, oh, therapy's not helpful. And then I, I kind of hung on. I was like, yeah, no, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Brian, is that, what, what was your response to that passage? Yeah, that is, that's a great passage. And as you mentioned, it comes at the end of the book. And it's interesting, you know, all of the events that you learn about her life and up until that point, you know, it's 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 a whole like lifetime, like two lifetimes worth of events, mm-hmm. and so you know, you you, you kind of mentioned, well, gosh, it took her so long to come in. You know, sometimes we don't see people ever come in, so it, yeah. it was actually kind of from a certain perspective. You know, she she actually you know addressed things in a in a fairly short time span. It was pretty mm-hmm. impressed, and mm-hmm. and I think that's pretty common to graduate students. I mean. There, there's so much going on. There's, there's like this, uh, you know, amazing um, ramp up of, of responsibilities uh, financially and otherwise. It's a stage in life where you just see this tremendous acceleration. And at the same time, you know, you have a life outside of academics and, mm-hmm. and that often imposes forces on you beyond your control and it comes to a head. And, and so in a lot of ways, she, she came at it in a... It, in the context of her whole lifespan mm-hmm. and and the numbers of things that she went through and experienced, she addressed them in a fairly yeah tight time span. Yeah, um, and and her, and her words were were I just really appreciated like the acknowledging the cumulative experience yeah. that you know she didn't just go in and like poof right <laughs> you know a whole lifetime of these things just you know were fixed. Mm-hmm. I'm using air quotes here fixed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know she. She kept coming back and slowly was able to reflect and see that there was a subtle shift, right. an important one. Right, and probably will continue to go back throughout her life, I would imagine, you know, uh, maybe not constantly going to therapy, but I mean, dip I, in and dip out. and yeah. Exactly, and, and I think if you, if you read the book, you can really appreciate that because, I mean, there's so many so many experiences that she had that were emotionally charged um, and confusing. So, yeah, I think it, it kind of makes sense when you get to this point in the book, you're like, wow, yeah, this is, mm-hmm. good. This is not something that just changes overnight. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's interesting. There's a lot I would like to talk about in what both of you said. Um, first of all, it's striking to me as an English professor that the book, that what she's describing here is not the, a similar dynamic, maybe from her and her reader, who is sort of silently listening to tell her story. And there's a way in which the book feels, I could imagine, was therapeutic in, in some ways to, to sort of claim her narrative, like you were talking about, Jessica, a little bit, um, to have her experience validated. 
um, and and to, to, to talk about it on her own terms. Uh, but I wanted to go back to something you, you said, Brian, about graduate students especially. Yeah. Um, and the sort of the unique struggles of being a graduate student and the unique strain of that. And you mentioned financial pressures, which yeah. I think is very real and, and also true for a lot of undergraduates here also, but maybe people don't think about that necessarily in terms of their mental health or as being a drain on their mental health because they're struggling, just struggling, that their existence is precarious in various ways. Mm-hmm. And certainly that was true for Westover. Yes. And I think even more so because at the time when she goes into treatment, she was an international student in England. Mm. So, you know, I think her precarious status as a student and, you know, she can't stay in that country unless she's still a student. So Mm -hmm. that that adds even even more pressure, certainly. Right. And if she doesn't, if she can't stay on top of her work, she will drop out of her program and then Mm -hmm. she'll be in this sort of precarious position in terms of what does she even, how does she make a living? Mm -hmm. Is that something you guys see or is that something that, that, that you find students coming in and and wanting to talk about is just the sort of stress of making a living? Yeah, I think so. I think especially for graduate students, it's not just the classes, it's the research or other work, teaching, you know, all these responsibilities. I think it's so hard to find any spare time in there to make money. Um, so there's certainly a lot more um, maybe loans or debt that you're getting mm-hmm. into. And, and then that you mm-hmm. know, adds a lot of extra stress. The loans. And the debt. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I know graduate students who work multiple jobs mm-hmm. because the pay is pretty low. I also was curious, it, there's a way in which in this passage what she's describing seems very small. Like there was something nourishing in setting aside that time each week in the act of admitting that I needed something I couldn't provide for myself. It seems like a small insight that she has, and yet it obviously takes a long time for her to get to a place where she can do that, and the therapy is so mm-hmm. essential to doing that. Yeah, that I, I really, really like that passage. I mean, when you think about it, we just talked about all the responsibilities that graduate students face. The idea of setting aside time mm-hmm. is is absurd. I mean, right? When you have the world pressing down upon you, maybe you're starting a family or you're in the throes of a new relationship. I mean, setting aside time to yourself. Right, for yourself. Yeah, I mean, it's a talk. To talk. <laughs> And, and and maybe it costs a little money or, mm-hmm. you know, there, there could be a number of barriers. But it, it I think when you're in the thick of it, it just seems absurd. And yeah. I, of course, it's not at right. all. And I think that's one of the interesting paradoxes that happens with with stress. And we, we use that term so generally, mm-hmm. we don't always exactly know what we mean when we use it. But I mean, that that's, I think, one of the almost for me, the definers of stress is when we begin to respond to the situation in ways that ultimately are not helpful, but but seem intuitive mm-hmm. um, at the time, mm-hmm. but actually serve to sort of gradually increase our stress or make it very difficult for the stress to slowly um, recede. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, let's talk about stress then and, and, and Westover a little bit, because you both read the book, and we can assume that anybody listening to this, if anybody's out there... <laughs> Uh, has read it too. So we can assume a certain amount of knowledge. So we don't need to go into a lot of detail about about her experience. But what did you see as the things that were causing her all of this mental anguish? Besides, we mentioned her kind of precarious financial situation, but there's obviously a lot more going on for her. I saw her as being really caught between what 
she was seen of the world of herself and what her family expected of her Mm -hmm. and really wanting to hold to those family ties, really valuing her family and then really starting to question it and starting to wonder, you know, do I want something different for myself? And I think that's a really hard spot to be in, to Mm -hmm. feel trapped, to want a little bit of both. Um, And, and ultimately for her, it, it was challenging to have a little bit of both and I think that's something that a lot of students can relate and maybe not to the extreme right. um, that she did, but this, you know, I'm, I can't, I can't choose how I want to live my life. I'm feeling pulled in two different directions. Mm-hmm. Sort of caught between two worlds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of, I think the experiences leading up to this point in the book were, you know, she was sort of framing it that way for herself was like, you know, I either do this and sort of pursue this direction that feels right to me or I don't have a family like at all right like mm-hmm. you know excommunicated mm-hmm. and that's terrifying to think about being out in the world by yourself entirely when all you've known is is this close family connection it is and I you know I think it's it's e- it's easy for the reader to say but look at that family and mm-hmm. surely you would just want to get the hell away from them you know, and to get as far as away from them as you could. And there's so, yeah, I mean, obviously there's abuse of various kinds there, but that's not an easy thing, I think, uh, for someone to, to do, to just mm-hmm. cut themselves off from their family like that. Mm-hmm. I think especially when it, if it's all you know. Right. You know, right. You, you don't know any any different. This, this was her normal for mm-hmm. most of her life. Right. And, of course, it's not just her parents. It's the whole world that they represent. It's that mm-hmm. place that she's not going to get to go back to. Mm-hmm. It's a religion, I think, to some extent. Um, it's a whole sort of worldview. Well, and also at the same time, I mean, she talks a lot about what, like you're saying, we could look at and be like, wow, why, how could you stay in that? Those are such horrible things. But she also, you know, reflects on on the beauty of the place that she was, some of the amazing qualities that many of her family had. Mm-hmm. And then she sort of listened and experienced different things from different family members and took away different, you know, she started to make her own experience. And so it wasn't all bad. Right. And, but, but how, how does a, someone who's been in that environment for so long begin to sort of like, sort of navigate that? Yeah. And I think sort of the idea of being completely removed from it is, would, would for any of us be incredibly stressful so it seemed like Brian, you were suggesting that there was. You talked about the way she frames her experience, and to some extent, maybe it was a false binary that she was setting up between kind of it's either one or the other, in terms of she can either have it or she can't. Right. Have and, the relationship with her parents or she can't. Yeah, and and I I, w- I wouldn't. I don't. There was nothing false about it. I mean, in terms of like, I think that's a common human trait, mm. and and you know, it's just easier to process things when it's binary, right? It's mm-hmm. it's zero or one, yes or no. Um, it's we can sort of process so much more information when we simplify things, um, and so that's a common common human trait. And I think it, it gets even. It, it's even more on display under stress, mm-hmm. in particular chronic stress. I mean, mm-hmm. that's a great survival mechanism, right? Make things pretty simple, mm-hmm. pretty actionable, so you can do a yes or a no. And so I think it, it, I would guess that that was a really, in a lot of ways, strong adaptation for her. I mean, I, I mean, she's gone on to amazing success. Mm-hmm. But at times, you know, certain adaptations, we don't get a chance to look back on and say, hey, 
you know, might I modify this a little bit? Is it is it currently serving me in ways that I'd want it to? Yeah. Um, and 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 back to the earlier point, she's now at this point in the book taking time to reflect possibly mm-hmm. on on her previous adaptations, which held huge um, benefit to her. But but at this stage in her life, you know, when she's entering new relationships and wanting to go in new directions you know she's she's reflecting on it mm-hmm. so yeah I, I think i think there was nothing false about it mm-hmm. it was just a way to to understand her experiences at the time that allowed her to do the best she could psychologically mm-hmm. in that environment mm-hmm. i think that we cope the best we can at any given time you know, and so For she, sure. like, the best that she could do was to view it as this black or white of this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. This this is how I'm going to get through this. And I, and I think she needed that at that time. And maybe that line of thinking isn't always going to work for her. And at a certain point, it, you know, she needed to change things up and found a different way of coping. But, I, yeah, I, th- I think that, that all or nothing extreme was, was her way of getting through that situation. It's interesting. I mean, it, it, what, what you guys are describing helps me understand the book narratively a little bit because it feels that it, it had felt, and it still does to some extent, feels kind of like there isn't real closure at the end of the book. What's been resolved? And there's still so many loose threads. But hmm. but also, I guess I could kind of understand her, 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 her journey as sort of splitting off from her family putting herself in this position or describing her, her, her situation as being kind of this either-or thing, and then by the end coming to some peace with some ambiguity about that, that it isn't that she has to choose one or the other exactly, that both will always coexist for her. Mm-hmm. So that is a, a kind of a resolution, I guess, well, less satisfying narratively than like psychologically mm-hmm. kind of accurate. Well, and I think that speaks to, again, that, that innate desire we all have to have things simple. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, even the book, we'd like to have it really tied up in a nice, neat bow. Right. But, I, and that's one of, the, I think, the things that drew me to this book anyway, is, is that it, it's very real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's a memoir. She's still living her life. She, of course. She's still, you know, growing and changing and working on these things and having setbacks. And so I, I, I also like that it doesn't tie up loose ends because that's life. Yeah. It's a weird thing about memoirs, you know, because they're often, you know, they're like this. This one, obviously, she's she's still quite young. Yeah. There's a lot of life ahead, mm-hmm. so we kind of want four, five, or six volumes. You know, <laughs> I would love to read the second volume of this book when she talks about huh. the whole experience of writing and promoting this book. It's probably yeah. kind of interesting, mm-hmm. and I think there's been a lot of pushback from her family <sighs> about the accuracy of her stories and the accuracy of her depictions and everything like that. Yeah. I would love to hear you guys talk about her brother, mm. uh, Sean, yeah. who is the one who, who is abusive to her, but then whom the family supports when they're sort of put, they're, it's put to them, she puts it to them, what had happened, and, 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 uh, and they sort of side with the brother. His character, he's so charming, and she loves him so much, you know, and, 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 and they, say, they, have, they spend all this time together, and then he kind of turns on her. And it's very hard to understand what's happened. I'm wondering if if that wasn't hard for you guys to understand, like that's st- his story. Could you make sense of that? I think I I wasn't overly surprised, um, at least initially when when he's injured and he has this traumatic brain injury. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of times there's and Brian, you might be able to speak to this more, but a lot of times there's associated personality changes and changes in aggression and this kind of thing. And so, um, 
you know, I could I could see how some of that might influence this dramatic shift for him from being this kind of charming person to someone she doesn't recognize. Yeah. Yeah, that the his character was was um was sort of difficult to uh to be to to witness, to bear witness mm-hmm. to and, and especially if you were empathizing with Westover, you know, uh, yeah. And I mean, in a lot of ways for me, he he embodied a lot of the the emotional volatility and sort of confusing things that were going on in the family. You know, they, that he was sort of the, the, the intense version of all of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the self-destructiveness, because there's, there's, there's not just the fall at the, at the scrapyard, but then he also has that horrible motorcycle accident, mm-hmm. right? He's not wearing a helmet. And he's obviously learned that from her father, who is also very reckless, not only with his own life, but with, with his children's lives. Mm-hmm. That's helpful, Jessica, to think about it as as a result of these brain injuries that mm-hmm. he's had. Right. And I'm also guessing there are multiple reasons for the family to support him. You know, hmm. fear, because um, he, I mean, he terrified me just reading oh, it. They're, they're afraid know. of him. Sure. Yeah. And I think also, you know, I imagine in this more conservative or fundamentalist upbringing, um, kind of valuing a, a man's perspective is, is probably more commonplace. Mm-hmm. Um, it probably seemed more natural or comfortable to side with Sean. Let's go back to her experience at university then and some of of her struggles, and maybe we can get a little more of the book. So we're looking kind of, again, late in the book, and she's describing this experience with her sister, Audrey, who initially reaches out to Tara Westover. Correct me if I get these details wrong, Um, but as I I remember, she she reaches out to, to Tara Westover to say that she too has been abused by her brother, which initially is confirmation for, for Tara that, that this had happened because there's been a lot of, uh, a sort of, she, she struggled a lot with um, just accepting the fact that it's happened uh, because she gets uh, different stories from different people. Then she gets a letter, another, or she gets a letter from her sister and sort of taking back everything that she said and saying this hasn't happened, sort of, uh, so the sister has sort of aligned herself with with her parents and her brother and, instead of with Tara. And it's just devastating for Tara Westover. And it seems to kind of precipitate this, some kind of psychological break. And I don't know if that's a term, you know, that, that if that's a if that's a, a term that people, professionals use or not, but um, everything kind of seems to come to a head for her as a result of this. So she's, she's talking about getting this letter, and she... Uh, and, and it says, after I read Audrey's letter, the past shifted. It started with my memories of her. They transformed. When I recalled any part of our childhood together, moments of tenderness or humor of the little girl who had been me with the little girl who had been her, the memory was immediately changed, blemished. Maybe, Jessica, you could pick it up. I began to defer always to the judgment of others. If Drew remembered something differently than I did, I would immediately concede the point. I began to rely on Drew to tell me the facts of our lives. I took pleasure in doubting myself about whether we'd seen a particular friend last week or the week before, or whether our favorite crepery was next to the library or the museum. Questioning these trivial facts and my ability to grasp them allowed me to doubt whether anything I remembered had happened at all. My journals were a problem. I knew that my memories were not memories only, that I had recorded them, that they existed in black and white. 
This meant that more than my memory was an error. The delusion was deeper in the core of my mind, which invented in the very moment of occurrence, then recorded the fiction. In the month that followed, I lived the life of a lunatic. Seeing sunshine, I suspected rain. I felt a relentless desire to ask people to verify whether they were seeing what I was seeing. Is this book blue? I wanted to ask. Is that man tall? So, yeah, I just would love to hear you hear you both talk about this experience she has because it seems so extreme it's such an extreme destabilization of her of her sense of reality. Yeah, it's in it it seems so she takes from this point of this is what I knew of my life and myself and my memories and I think memories are very personal to us mm-hmm. um, and they seem so much like truth. Of course, the way that we record things is not like a perfect, you know, like a computer that records information and puts it in the memory. You know, we we record things in a flawed way, too, and we recall in a flawed way. Mm-hmm. But but I think the, the way she really starts to doubt everything about her reality just really struck me about how much this impacted her. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great section of the book. I mean, she must have had so much insight in, into her own um, sort of mental functioning that that she could kind of share this experience with the readers, but yeah, I mean, I think there that many of us kind of have this expectation that our memory is like a recording device, or if we take the time to journal, that you know that that's the accurate mm-hmm. um, representation of any given experience, and and really uh, what what we know you know, emotion plays a huge, huge aspect of, of, of how we sort of store memories and then, and then how we recall them. And so she's ha- she had an emotional experience as the memories were being sort of recorded to use that, that sort of um, comparison. It's not a great comparison as a <laughs> recorder device. We get stuck with, with our own use of language here. But, but then now, now she's trying to reflect back on it with a different set of hmm. emotions from a completely different angle. And, you know, I think the, I imagine the meta experience for her is like, wait, wait, these are different. How can that be? You know, mm-hmm. uh, it, it's, it, it's just supposed to be one way. Right. Uh, I must, there must be something wrong with me. Right. You know, how, what, what, what would a person conclude? In, and, I, and I think, yeah, that, that's like a, like a tremendously confusing experience that probably takes a long time to sort of come back down to a place that's like, okay, I, you know. I can see myself then and what I was going through then and understand a little bit how I might be assembling my experience at that time. I see myself sort of now and I can get a sense of, okay, what, what, see why I'm coming at it this way now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and she's telling this. I mean, the the, the book is a story of of her education, which is which is really about her personal development, her, her, her becoming a person separate from the world that, that she grew up in. And and I'm just I'm I'm struck. I mean, it, it's helpful listening to you both because I, I I realize just how her psychological acuity. I mean, she just the, she the way she understands why she has done the things she's done is is really remarkable. So, like, is she describing here this that 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 she's 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 letting herself doubt seeing sunshine? I spe- suspected rain. Is this book blue? Is that man tall? Like. Is she suggesting that she's doing that because to not do that would mean admitting something about her family? Hmm. Like she wants to think that she does, she can't actually trust herself because to trust herself would be to trust her account hmm. of how things happened with her brother 
and how her parents reacted. And that would be really cool to ask her. I, I'd be <laughs> really no, I'd, I'd be yeah. really curious, especially after having written it and as you said, gone through the book tour and mm-hmm. just. I mean, obviously, we can't know what what how how she's reflecting on that. But yeah, that that kind of makes sense. That could mm-hmm. be a reason for sort of her her doubting herself mm-hmm. is it's maybe protective. I don't know. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to make assumptions about what her experience or reaction was, but I, I could see it being protective that, well, maybe I am faulty. I'm not the one who's, who's accurately recording this. My family couldn't possibly have been that bad to me. I'm just the one that's messing up and, and remembering this wrong. And I think that, you know, it, at that time, she was really wanting to stay connected to her family. And can you imagine how threatening that would be if you knew family did these things to you, understood that and, and stayed and, and, and accepted it? So I think for her, it, it right. provided the separation of, oh, well, you know, they're not really that bad. I'm, I'm bad. Right. I see that a lot with folks. Who right. Can, oh, really? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. And I would even say for myself, I mean, that's one of my go-tos. Is <laughs> Denial. Like, no, no. We're just like, okay. You know, I'm in charge here. I can fix this. You know, I'm, if things go wrong, it's all on me. You know, uh-huh. um, I must be, I must have this wrong. I must have done this wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think any of us, when you're, you know, long periods of time trying to do things on your own and figure stuff out on your own, you take on a lot of internal responsibility. And certainly she gives throughout the book many accounts of just trying to make sense of her world on her own without a whole lot of feedback. And you know, and, and interestingly, in this passage, right, she's going through doubt, but in earlier passages in the book, even when she's young, she speaks so strongly as to like, okay, this was really, really weird, and I knew this was weird as a kid, mm-hmm. and I knew this was good. Like, you know, like reflections, early reflections she had in working with her mom when her mom was uh, like a midwife, right? Yeah. Like, she could speak with clarity to those things. So, at this moment, I see her as like, okay... I just had this sort of almost breakthrough with my sister and then it was like rescinded. And so, you know, I'm going to throw myself under the bus here right. because I can do that. I can, you know, that, that's what I've always done. I've, I've, it's all come back to me. And that, that is something she can control. It yes. sounds like yeah, yeah. herself and her reactions, but she Possibly, can't yeah. control. Yeah. I mean, for me, that's kind of when, when I yeah. go into that space, it's like, okay, well I can do this. This is, within my control. I don't have to depend on other people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's also a, a struggle with authority because these people mm-hmm. have been the authority, her father and, you know, her mother, her brother, like these people have been the authorities in her life and leaving them, going to school, so much of that is about struggling and rejecting authority. And that that, I mean, this is like, that has a psychological component too and that that's difficult emotionally to do. I mean, I think we think about that often in heroic terms, you know, to sort of, to, 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 re, to, re, particularly, I think in, in college, you know, or maybe this was just me, but like rejecting authority and, and sort of, and, and coming into one's own authority. Yeah. But that that's not easy to do and that it can be painful and, yeah. and might itself be a reason to go visit the Caruth Center. That's destabilizing. Yeah, and sometimes destabilization is is kind of the the experience before integration, hmm. you know, occurs. That, that that there's a period of like separating these experiences and doubting them. And cuz she as the 
you know, that you start to see toward the end, there's this integration. Yeah. Well, what do you mean by that, by integration? Well, so, you know, at the, she sort of takes these extremes, which is what was, you know, can be a, a good mechanism to figure things out. It's sort of hi- use hyperbole, right? Use mm-hmm. the extreme version to get a sense of the bounds, because once you know the bounds, you can start to like narrow in on maybe what's more uh, accurate to you and helpful. And so, yeah, this is maybe a part in the book where it's like, well, I don't even know what the weather is. If it's sunny, I think it's raining. She's she's exploring the the bounds of of the reality of her, her her narrative for herself. And but she comes back to I think probably a more stable place that's mm-hmm. more integrated that has elements of both uh-huh. instead of just one or the other. Okay, okay. So it's a, t- so by integrated, it, it's like she's integrated these different elements of her life into a single story. Yeah, and, is that, that right? Kinda, right. Mm-hmm. And so right here, right, her identity is kind of scattered. She's even saying like, I f- it just feels better to have people almost decide for me or think for mm-hmm. me. And yeah, so integrating all these things into herself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's like this dramatic shift in her identity when she's a student. And then when she goes back home to Buck's Peak, it's like um, these two different versions of myself. And, and I, I see her as being a lot more integrated at the end of the memoir. Yeah. So would, it, would you describe that as like a goal of, of therapy? Absolutely. integration absolutely so a core tenant to the therapy that i do is congruence um so that's me being authentic me integrating this real version of myself how i see myself how i really am and this ideal how i want to be you know the um limits and what's what's possible mm-hmm. um so i think a, a lot of the work i do is helping clients figure out who they are and accept who they are bringing all these pieces rather than oh let me take the good and ignore the bad yeah like we're, we're all flawed, mm-hmm. kind of accepting that is really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and often that does end up being the focus of therapy or just ch- general mental health care, S- things that uh, individuals do on their own outside of the mm-hmm. meetings with their therapist, right, is, is integrating. But it's not, you, usually we don't show up in our therapist's office and we're like, hey, I have some integration problems. Can you, you know, <laughs> yeah. help me reintegrate here? But back to that earlier passage we were discussing where, you know, Tara's kind of not really sure. She just goes in and makes the time and it slowly evolves. I think that question becomes more clear to her and possibly with her therapist is like, okay, this is going to be the one of the goals mm-hmm. of therapy. Mm-hmm. So those things emerge over time. Yeah. That, that accumulation is partly about First, there's a long process of diagnosis, if that's the right term. Yeah, I think and, that's, yeah. And, and I don't know what your thoughts are on this, Jessica, but like, I think a lot of times the, the individual and the therapist begin to sort of co-create what, it, what the goals are, mm-hmm. right? Where mm-hmm. it's not just the therapist saying, hey, you need to be integrated. You know, like <laughs> it's, it's, it's uh, the careful listening from the therapist right. and, and the, the courage that someone like Tara would have mm-hmm. to be able to share their story and the two together beginning to sort of say, hey, look, they're, they're both looking at similar things and saying, hey, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? Is this a reasonable goal? Is it integration? Right. And maybe you wouldn't use such a clinical term. Right. but Yeah, I think that coming to therapy can feel like this huge risky thing, and it absolutely is, to, you know, completely open yourself up um, like that. That's not something that we do typically. And um, I think a lot of times with folks that I work with, they might come in with one set of goals, but once you start talking, things change, things evolve. 
you know, for example, I could see maybe Tara comes in and says, I need help writing my dissertation. Mm-hmm. And, and it might seem right. very straightforward. Yeah. Right. And then three sessions in, she's like, oh, well, I had this very traumatic childhood that <laughs> really makes it difficult for me to um, get out of bed and do things yeah. besides binge watch TV. Right. Oh, okay. That's, that's what we're working on here. Right. And those two things might not be unrelated. Mm-hmm. And maybe she's having struggles with an advisor sure. or something like that. And that could be connected to childhood or something like that. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think I would just say, uh, I think therapy is such a wonderful thing. And my experiences with it have been so positive and, and immediate too. Like you're describing the, the, that it's, it, it is a very slow process. And, and I love that about it. And I love that it's so much about the, the, the patient and do you use the word patient? So I th- we might differ in terms of, of what we say. Um, so coming from a perspective of a counseling psychologist, I use client. Um, client. And I think that's because um, I really view the relationship being a little more balanced, more egalitarian. Mm. Um, so rather than viewing the client as being in a sick role, I view them as wanting to work with me collaboratively on how yeah. they can improve on something. Yeah. Yeah, and typically physicians in the, in the medical community uses the term patient. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But, um, you know, I, I at times have reservations for for the reasons that, that Jessica's. Um, and, and so usually I kind of just get a feel from the individual I'm working with yeah. in, in terms of what what um, what name or reference makes makes well, the most sense. I'll, like I'll just say the person. Like, you know, for the for the person <laughs> that, 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 that it's a long process and, and a collaborative process. And that's true, I think, and, and again, in, in my experience, but also it's so immediately gratifying to go into a room, even, I mean, an hour can feel like it's just a, such a wealth of time when you're sitting there getting to just talk about what's on your mind. And immediately you have this new perspective on it. I mean, that, that the distance, simply getting it off your chest, as we say, right? Mm. But it's different than getting it off your chest to a friend or to your dog <laughs> uh, or, or even in your journal. There's another person there, but it's a very special relationship and they're listening and you feel them listening and you say it and you can see it, whatever it is that you've said. And you, oh, oh my gosh, that's sort of like... I just, I, I, uh, that experience is so wonderful and mm-hmm. feels so healthy mm-hmm. to me. And they're not accept, they're, they're not judging you, they're accepting And that's you a all. huge part of it, mm-hmm. too. I think that a lot of times initially, um, even just one session, you know, clients can report feeling a lot better. And, and that's because they, you know, that hope of, okay, I'm finally, I'm finally working on this. Mm-hmm. This, this wasn't as scary. And a lot of times the, the mode, the most frequent number for uh, session attendance is, is one. Hmm. So a lot of people come in and mm-hmm. um, say, ooh, that was intense. I don't know about that. Um, right. So I think, like you said, the relationship is really important to help right. people work on right. these things over time. Yeah. And I think it's nice when it, when it takes the path that you're describing. I think it doesn't always take that path and it can be hard to come back because it's not reinforcing in the way that you just described. In other Mm -hmm. words, you sort of spend the whole hour and you have this different perspective that, that feels good in the moment and you can say, Oh yeah, I I would be, I'd be down with doing that again. Right. I think for some, you know, most of their thinking is private on certain issues. Right. And they're not sharing it with others. And so, to do so could be really, really, really uncomfortable. In fact, some mm-hmm. people, do, the, the, you know, we, we all try to even, we'll, we'll block out our own thinking. It's like you, you start to notice your thinking 
or remember certain things. And you're like, no, 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 I don't even want to go there because I'm going to get distressed and then I'm going to do bad on this exam. So you know, you just you block it out, right? Yeah. So you almost block. You're constantly blocking these thoughts that come up throughout the day. And then, and then you come in and tell another person, you may not actually, you may not feel good, mm-hmm. right? Especially right, right after. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that is, that's not necessarily reinforcing, you know, you, a lot of, uh, I'll hear people say, well, I don't really want to go back because I just, I feel like garbage right. after I come in and say this stuff. Hmm. And, you know, a different angle on that might be that they f- would feel like less garbage than if they allow themselves to think about these things. So it doesn't always start off as initially positive. I think, I think sometimes it's less negative. Their, their internal emotional experience with processing, you know, certain things is less negative than other avenues that they would take. Yeah. But, but that, and sometimes that's a initial conversation we have with folks when, when they show signs, when they leave our Mm -hmm. office, um, really kind of telling us they're not feeling any better. And their hope was coming in that they'd have this right. conversation and have this immense relief. Because mm-hmm. um, that, 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 it doesn't always happen that way. Yeah. Yeah, very important to, to manage expectations for what the treatment process looks like. Hmm. Yeah. I think especially for something really painful like trauma, I, I start out by saying a lot of times it gets worse before it gets better. Hmm. And that's because, you know, maybe your go-to strategy has been push it down, don't think, don't think. And that worked for you in a lot of ways. And you needed to do that in a lot of ways. Um, and bringing this up is, is hard and it's painful and that's understandable. So, you know, a lot of times before getting into that, you know, we need to kind of work on our defenses so that we can handle when these things right. come up. So it's not just this huge tidal wave that's crushing and then we're just drowning under all this, but that yeah. we have something that can help us swim. Yeah. And maybe way, one way to sort of think about that is, is um, you know, if, if, if any of us haven't had physical activity for a long time and then we, we decide for whatever reason, we're going to, we're going to do something right. Like that's not me. I don't do that. (laughs) Well, right. So initially it's, it's not, you know, it's, it's not reinforcing, right? Like Uh if, if if you haven't had any physical activity in your life for a while, then, you know, jumping in and doing something new, you know, first of all, new stuff is generally scary. Um, But then, you know, your body hasn't yet adapted to, you know, responding to that, you're sore, right. uh, you're tired. Um, but over time, you know, physical activity, usually you start to like, okay, I'm not as sore. Actually, I have a little more energy during the day. I mean, I think some of those, it's not a perfect metaphor, but I think that can also happen yeah. in, in the therapy process is that initial like, ooh, I don't think I want to keep doing this. Yeah. But over time, it's like, oh, yeah, I'm starting to get a little more breathing space here. Yeah. Well, it sounds like it's very different for different people. For sure. And uh, and that part of the process is just, for, I imagine for you as well as for the client, is coming to understand what it's going to look like, what the course of treatment or whatever is, is going to look like. Yeah, I think that's a, a really important first step is mm-hmm. sort of spending a little time, what, what might this look like? What does it look like for you now? So you can kind of adjust. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that didn't come up that, that you guys would like to talk about? in the book or outside the book? I think one thing, Brian, you know, to put you on the spot, but I think you can really speak to is um, there's a part in the book where Tara is very reluctant to take medications, like even just something simple Mm. like a painkiller. And I think that's such an extreme version, but I think very common what I see is 
students who are really worried about medications and like, how is this going to impact me? And, you know, or what does it mean for me if I'm taking medications? And I'm kind of curious what your reaction was to that. Yeah. So, I I mean, that's, I love talking with students about that. And I mean, for Tara, I imagine her reservations or, you know, everybody has reservations for their own reasons. I generally try to support that and and listen to that because I think there's often a lot of wisdom in that. And so giving that some time and space to kind of understand that better often helps an individual, whether they decide to take medication or not, it helps them understand the context in which they're making the decision. It helps buffer their expectations. It helps guide them as they go through the process and understand okay, well, I feel this way. I feel this is, you know, there's all kinds of millions of questions that come up. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I love, I love that topic. And for her, I mean, she, you know, there, there was a lot about, you know, um, her mom is a healthcare provider and, and her mom's approach to health. And then, you know, her families that possibly, you know, weighed into that mm-hmm. for her. Um, and, you know, certainly there was, probably a lot of wisdom in, in those experiences she had. And so, you know, I, I, being skeptical is, is not a bad thing. <laughs> you know, I think there's often wisdom that undergirds that. And then once you understand that better, I think you can use leverage that wisdom in your favor. Again, whether you take the medication or not. Well, thank you guys so much for making the time. This has been a really nice conversation. And I'm, I'm really grateful to have the chance to think about the book from this perspective and, and just to, to have your insights on the book. So I appreciate you both coming in. Yeah, you bet. Thanks. It was it was fun uh, talking with you. And, and it's great that, that uh, you're going over the, the book in this format. It's, it's really cool. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having us. I'm definitely going to listen to the rest of the episodes that have come out. So oh, far. good. Good. And tell your friends. <laughs> yes. This podcast is a joint production of the WVU Humanities Center and the DA and produced by Nick Kratzis and Savon Hunter. Copyright 2019.